Okay, hello. Um, I'm Francisco here from Neural DSP, and today we're starting our first post podcast ever with Neural DSP called Inside the Machine. So today we have a very special guest, who is Ermin Habirovich. So how are you, Ermin? Oh, I'm great. Thank you very much for having me on your program. It feels amazing to be, I think, the first guest, and yeah, hopefully you, you guys have many, many more to come. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're our first guest. So, how is the it's, weather in Australia right now? Uh, it's freaking cold, man. It's we're kicking into autumn and winter now. So, I've I've just managed to warm the room up enough with my speakers and all the analog gear and stuff that I don't actually need a heater on. So, I've got my my short sleeve shirt. But yeah, if I leave this room, I freeze to death out here. So, it's not <laughs> fantastic at the moment. Uh, you guys, I'm guessing it's a bit better up there, or is it just the standard Finnish brutal cold constantly? No, surprisingly, this this week has been quite warm to be honest and we are trying to go outside as much as possible because you never know when it ends <laughs> lucky you yeah yeah i'm sure it's a short season for you guys yeah like i've been trying to go to like swimming and you know outdoor stuff as much as i can because then after two weeks you have to lock in lock yourself inside again that's right you have two <laughs> weeks to get all of your vitamin d for the year <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so um, for people that don't know you, um, would, I would like you to introduce yourself and who are you and what have you done so far and what, however interaction you want to do for people that haven't heard from you before. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I'm a very new neural DSP artist. Um, thanks to Doug, I'm part of this crew now, which is really amazing. So I've been a Dark Glass user for a couple of years now. Um, but prior to all that, I've been a recording engineer for about a decade and a half now. Uh, since I was about 17 or so. So I think the thing that people would have known me for most back in the day was writing the systematic mixing guide in 2012. Um, afterwards, I was lucky enough to get in with the periphery guys, work on periphery Juggernaut Alpha and Omega, periphery 3, then we did the Devon Townsend record, and more recently, um, a, a bunch of different things, from Pliny to Arch Echo to, you know, uh, betraying the martyrs, all sort of stuff. Okay, that's awesome to hear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was an awesome project to be a part of. It's it's an awesome thing to do. I'm I'm very glad that I think Nolly pulled me along for this whole trip to work with all these amazing artists. I think we have a great working relationship, and we we do a lot of really cool stuff together. And I, I'm sure I think he's worked with Dark Glass in the past. He's obviously been one of like the the mainstay guys that's that's been demoing the the gear over the years since he was obviously the bass player in periphery and stuff yeah yeah he's he has always been like in inside of like dark class as, as long as i've heard like he has always been inside there and we are trying to get him to to work as in in some different projects also inside neural dsp so like we are all friends so it's it's really interesting to work with with him he's a very nice guy yeah, that'd be great. It'd be great to get him on board with everyone else. You've got such a great crew of people on board Neural DSP at the moment. Some, so many great colleagues and people that I, I know and like very much. So it's a great thing to be a part of, I think. Oh, that's good. That's uh, really, really good to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's our pleasure, man. So how did you how did you start like getting connections with, with, with all these producers and... How, did you start in a forum like when you were young or like how did you start creating this network? and ended up where you are how, how did it all start this yeah, like people uh, connections uh, sure sure i did it very much the modern way um it's 
I guess it's slightly obsolete now, but I used to use bulletin boards a lot, forums, online forums. I used to engage in a lot of discussion on various boards for my favorite bands and things like that. And one day when I think I was trying to get out of doing work in class, I found this board called the Andy Sneap Forum. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? And I went on. And because I was just learning how to record, I was a guitar player at the time, I noticed that the whole forum was about recording and all of these people were sharing these amazing tips and Andy himself was posting and I was picking up all of this amazing information. And it turned out that being a part of the Andy Sneap board during the, what was it, like the early to mid-2000s was sort of like an online golden age for recording. Like everybody came from there. Nolly was on there. Ola was on there. Glenn Fricker was on there. You've got Joey Sturgis was on there. Pretty much everybody who does anything in metal now was part of that board. It was an amazing sort of a golden age for, for us to learn and pick up things and network with each other and create these sort of substantive careers in the, in the music industry. So that board was where I initially um, met up with a bunch of different guys, including Ola. Uh, sorry, not Ola, um, Nolly. Yeah. And this was when he was still doing uh, bare knuckle pickups. Like he hadn't joined Periphery yet, uh, even though I think Periphery didn't even exist at the time. Misha was still posting demos on there as Bulb. So these were pretty, pretty fundamental sort of formatory like early years. Um, and yeah, that was that was a very important connection, but. For me, I noticed that, you know, in spite of being part of all this for so long, my career was very much restrained to the domestic bands. I was very much working with just guys from Melbourne, Australia, bands that just weren't really being heard very much despite our best attempts to really, you know, get things taking off and going. So what I realized at one point when I was just mixing really prolifically was, man, you know, I keep thinking about all these concepts and I have all these ideas in my head all the time. Why don't I put this to paper and actually write some kind of a coherent guide, something where I can reach a few more people than like a couple of guys domestically as I have been for the last, you know, however many years. And that was essentially the birth of the systematic mixing guide. Mm. So when I, when I wrote that book and it came out, that that was a very big paradigm shift in the way that I was perceived and the way that I kind of structured my career. It became sort of like a quasi-educational thing, and I think Nolly came to see me in that capacity. We had a lot of chats about production in the early days when he was still learning how to do all this stuff because he was still fundamentally a guitar player at the time. Um, and I think as as we built all of these these partnerships and we worked together and all that sort of stuff, he came to realize this was a couple of albums in uh, at this point and i think i had just i'd remastered meshuggah's obzen for my own listening purposes at the time and i decided to send it to him because i'm like hey man like do you prefer version a or version b just something we commonly did was shoot mixes to each other and, and work out you know what sounds best um, and he's just like, yeah, man, this is, actually sounds quite good. I've sent it to Misha and he reckons that we should get you to test master the new periphery record. And that was essentially the beginnings of what became a, a full-time mastering career now, as well as the educational stuff. So a little bit convoluted, a few years involved there, but I think the source of it where it all began was the bulletin boards and especially the Andy Sneap forum. That was really the, the foundation point for a lot of us. Interesting. Yeah, I've heard a lot about that forum. I never really participated on it, but now like I've heard a lot about it and that all the all these people come from there. That's really interesting. So that's why I, I wanted to ask. So it's so it's true that that's the that's where everything began. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for a lot of us, it definitely did. And we owe Andy our careers in a lot of ways. Uh, I think 
I wish I'd had more of a chance to express that to him over the years, but we were never really in touch, you know, directly. But yeah, I think we, we owe a lot of our, our success to him and what he did with that place. That's really awesome. Um, do you, uh, how, how did you end up like, just, did you jump straight to mastering or you like started like first recording and mixing and producing like uh, full albums from the scratch or all of a sudden you, you figured that mastering was your thing and you didn't do much mixing or how, how did it go for you in that sense? Like sure. Yeah, well, I, I, interestingly enough, I never cared for mastering. It was never one of my passions. It's never something I wanted to get into, nor was I interested in it. I, the reason I got into this was to basically model my career on something similar to what Andy had done, or furthermore, something like um, someone like CLA. I love the idea of just mixing constantly. I love the idea of like people recording amazing records and me being able to do like maybe two records a month or something really slow paced where I could put a lot of focus and attention on that one record and eventually crack a high enough tier in the industry that I could make a living off doing that. Now, unfortunately for me, that never really happened. I don't know whether that tier in the industry no longer exists or because it's out of touch, it's like all based in LA or New York or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I was never able to actually create a career out of just doing that. Like the music industry shifted so much in the decade and a half after I got into this industry. So... I got into it in the mid-2000s, which was sort of the tail end of that whole thing. Like Napster had just come out, um, music was being devalued across the board, the music industry was shifting, nobody kind of knew what they were going to do with it. So that 90s model that I wanted to base my career on no longer existed. Mm -hmm. So it became very obvious. And I'd seen this before with my mentors. I'd seen them refuse to change with the times. And as a result, they basically were forced to shut down because they were never profitable. Yeah. One of my main things was you always have to bend. You have to be malleable. You have to be flexible. You have to move with where the currents are pushing you. And with the way that things panned out after doing um, the Juggernaut Records and Periphery 3, it was very obvious that there was a much better career path for me in mastering. So I refocused. Um, I basically just rejigged my whole approach to things and dug a lot more into mastering. And I've picked up a, a great deal in the last couple of years that we've been doing this because once again, mastering was never my focal point. I always considered myself a far superior mixing and recording engineer. But now I have this fairly well-rounded skill set, I think, where I can basically record, mix and master. Um, but to actually get back to answering your question, yeah, I'd initially just wanted to, to do mixing and work on full records. My passion was just in making the music itself. I loved the production aspect. I loved kind of changing the songs with the bands and yeah, making them me hit too. a bit that's harder. Favorite part too. Yeah, man, absolutely. I mean, that's, I think when you're a kid and you're listening to the music, the, the purity of the experience is there for you. You want to be there and you want to be a part of making the music. But um, I think at a certain point, a bit of a reality check comes in and it's like, look, I can probably do this on a few projects per year, like a few passion projects that I take on. But if I want to actually make this a career that's profitable that I can live off, there are other things that I need to pursue in order to, to make that happen. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree with you. And it's good that how life goes that sometimes opportunities come and you see you see yourself in that situation and it's like well it's not what i expected but it's 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 as good as something that i thought it could be so why not give it a shot and then then you end up in a better place that you ever expected so it's yes like life gives you turns that and opportunities that you have to use very well and you can you can make a lot of profit out of it not not in money wise, but like, you know. 
Yeah, yeah, in terms of like personal fulfillment and stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the, the key is to not be closed off to new experiences and mm-hmm. to not be closed off to new opportunities, I think. And it's very bad. I think one of the things that you see in this industry a lot is people that sort of stagnate. They have their ideas like, oh, tube amps are the only way I'm ever going to work or like <laughs> yeah. analog is the only way I'm ever going to work. And it's <laughs> yeah. like, that's only going to get you so far in an industry that's changing. Like if, if your clients are expecting you to recall your projects like three to six months from now or three years from now are you seriously going to go back and book in the the studio and pull pull up the desk do like a total recall on the ssl or something when you can just like double click a project file on a laptop now and pull it all back up like there are certain realities to working in the industry now and there are certain things that you have to accept as as part of the mechanism of working Exactly. Um, unless you want to be the forced to shut down, you know. So it's it's good to be part of progressive companies and what you guys are doing with Neural, even though it started. Um, I know there's a close link to Dark Glass where you guys started doing the whole um, the pedal and the stomp box thing, but now you're moving it to the digital realm. That's so smart and so necessary for what people need in their workflow. Yeah, exactly. Like it all started like just talking with Doug. Like, hey, we need to we need to create our own stuff in in the digital format. Like, we we really need to move there. There's a lot of pr- producers that like you or like or like me or like bedroom producers or or big studio producers that hey, I don't want to plug my B7K all the time. Every time I have to record a new track and then I have to tweak it, record it, and then I cannot change it anymore. And nowadays, like when you are mixing something, you're always changing stuff on the fly. Something happens and you just want a different sound all of a sudden. And digital realm allow, allows you to do that, not, not, not having to come out of your interface and reamp the whole thing and then, you know, record again. Like now you can do it all on the fly and we had to have our our original software. So like Neural DSP was born and now there's a lot of more projects coming on and it's very challenging and it's very exciting. Yeah, it's fantastic for you guys. And I completely agree. There was a couple of years there where I had a very printing heavy workflow for my mixing where I would require like the ability to print through all of my vocals through the um, analog gear and all of this other stuff. So I would have to prepare the record for days before I could mix. And mm. it was one of the worst periods of my working life. I don't know <laughs> why I ever did that. I, it just, it destroyed me. Like there, there was like, I had to write a freaking equation chart on how I was going to tackle each album. And, and like the anxiety would cripple me before I even began. So these days, just being able to pull things up, run everything in real time, know I can go back and tweak things. It's so much, so much easier and so very yeah. important with the way that people expect you to work these days. So it's an absolute no-brainer, I think, to work hybrid or largely digital these days, um, certainly progressively more digital as we go along. I'm sure the next generation after us are going to be solely digital. Yeah, uh, I can't imagine definitely. it being any other way. Yeah, just grabbing some point from there. Um, I figured that, for example, nowadays, like people that are learning or, or people that are not so sure of what they're doing, or even if you are, sometimes it, it also happens like that that you have this whole session, you did this song, you started mixing, and then because you have this freedom of going back all the time to the very beginning, like you tend to, tend to overdo stuff. Does does that happen to you? Or how do you recall when you are like on spot or are you organized with your steps so you never go back because you know that the first thing that you did was right in the beginning? How how do you face this kind of issue if it happens to you? Yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a challenging one. I mean it's it's not something I face very often, I suppose. It's it all depends on the client and what they're after. I generally 
I don't second guess myself very much these days because I've been working for quite a while now. I've kind of run through all the preliminary formative steps that people need to run through when they question themselves as a mix engineer and do all this and that sort of thing. Yeah. I've come to a point where I understand I have a good middle ground of the gear that I'm using. I, I generally know what to use if I'm going for a certain aesthetic or depending on what the band want. It's it's just a, a an, out, an outgrowth of experience and just having done things for a while. It's not something you can really quantify, unfortunately. It's sort of like the idea of when people ask you, you know, why breathing air is so easy to you. It's like, well, I've been doing it for 31 years. <laughs> <It's just laughs> yeah, no, one, one of those things that happens. But I think the, the wrong client and the wrong relationship can really throw you for a loop. Like if they want something different to what you're providing and you haven't communicated well, that's when things can get really messy because you keep going back and forth. And it's just like, what are you trying to say to me? Like, I, I can't quite interpret what you're mm. saying into a real world result. I, I don't know how to kind of facilitate what you're after. So I think communication is is probably one of the very the uh, the foundation elements of any kind of a working relationship in in music. You need to make sure that everybody's on the same page and that they can deliver what you're after. Because if things aren't being communicated effectively, you're going to unnecessarily have a really bad time. Yeah, no, for sure. Also, in that communication topic, I think that uh, it's good that nowadays everything is more accessible to people. So when you have a new customer, even like young kids that have like their own bedroom studio like people are learning about concepts and terminology and they can communicate like a little bit better what they what they have in mind sound wise in in terms of music production and like engineering terms so have, yep. do you feel that that's like some some good point about like this this whole new wave of home studios or or do you think that I it's think more it of a negative side I think it's a double-edged sword, definitely. So on one mm. hand, if somebody has gone through the gauntlet of recording their own EP or something before, the terminology they use will be similar to yours. They'll understand how tracks work and you know how to deliver things and formats, bit rates, sample rates, all that sort of thing. But one of the problems that you're going to have is when guys are very new to this industry, you go through that period of where you think you know more than you actually do. And that's an yeah. extremely dangerous place to be, especially when you're working with seasoned engineers, because you will literally hold the entire process back by just over-asserting yourself and assuming that you know things about the process that you haven't actually formed a good grasp of. So I've, I've had it work both ways. It can help. But unfortunately, if somebody fancies themselves as like a a brilliant home engineer and you're trying to finish a record for them, a lot of the time they'll simply get in the way from trying to over-assert themselves. So there's definitely a, a middle ground in there and there are some personalities that are a bit easier to work with than others. Yeah, okay. I I understand. And I agree, of yep. course. Um, what what do you think that it's... Um, I mean, how does your, how does your like, for example, your, your studio gear has, how does it look nowadays? How does it, has it changed as, as you mentioned before you, before you printed your tracks and you work with a lot of like analog gear probably, uh, how, yep. what, what have you kept? What have you changed and how does it look nowadays? Is it more of a simple yep. setup or you still have like walls of amplifiers or like, how does it, how is it working nowadays? Yeah, so that's a pretty easy question to answer because I've got my gear right next to me here so we can we can kind of break it down, itemized list. Uh, so what I essentially record into these days at home is a Millennia Origin, very basic sort of classical quality, very pristine sounding preamp channel strip unit that I use well for my vocal feed right now and also DI recording here at my project studio. Uh, 
the the list is very it's very minimalistic i think and it's very small i have just the bare essentials that i need for mixing and for tracking things and working in a very hybridized workflow so when i when i track out at studios let's say i'm doing vocals or something like that i will generally print the vocals through a distressor or i'll, I'll do like a rudimentary stage of compression on the way down just so i don't have to worry about printing that sort of stuff later on down the track i like the old school format of committing I like the idea of going, this is it. Like, yeah. if we don't like this, we got to re-record this shit. Because there's too much non-committal stuff happening in recording these days for me. I don't like the fact that people can keep recalling things or go back and edit the drums, like, after the album's been mastered. Exactly what we talked before. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, it's... It's a challenging thing when you when you can't commit to the headspace. Um, I know headspace is something we can touch on later, but the idea that you've gone from editing to mixing, but at any point you can go back to editing, that's a hugely destructive thing for your psyche. Mm. Like you, you can't, they're two very different processes. They're two very different hemispheres of the brain that have to work for that. And especially when you jump to mastering and I'm going back and my clients are still like revising drum hits and stuff, things that should have been done six months ago, we're having yeah. to deal with in the mastering process. So one of the things I love is printing. I like committing to tracks. I like flying by the seat of our pants and going, this is it, man. Like, And some of the best sounding records I've done have been done that way because the band will be like, yeah, we trust you. Let's do this. We'll go and record into the amps. We'll We'll do things old school, like direct in. It's like, you know what? If these guitar tracks are screwed or your amplifier pops a tube, we're, we're screwed. Like, we pretty we have to yeah. re-record all yeah. this stuff again. But there's a certain excitement to doing it that way, you know? I know you can't do every record that way, but there's a certain kind of magic to it. But Definitely. anyway, to... To, to go back to the list, so from there, I've got a, a very basic two-bus uh, SSL-style stereo bus compressor. I've used one of these since 2009 when we first made one. I absolutely love it. I love the idea that if you're going to have outboard gear anywhere, it'll be across the mix bus, so it applies to every single element in your mix. That's probably the most potent place to have an outboard compressor for me. Yeah. So... Moving on from there, we've got like a 500 series rack with two 1176 Rev A's. Uh, I've got two DBX 560 A's. I like them as snare compressors. I uh, probably shouldn't have two. I only ever use the one on snare. Sometimes it doesn't even work all the time. But the, the 1176s are amazing vocal compressors and they make good bass compressors as well sometimes, depending on what you're after. And of course, the, um, the obligatory two distressors as well. Because, you know, just got to have a, a stereo pair of distressors. Even though I never run them in stereo, I just have them because why not? And, uh, yeah, that's that's like the crux of it, really. I've got some little odds and ends here and there, like a, a little RNC compressor, a little overstayer compressors that I like to use on synths and drum bus and things to really crunch them up in a way that I think the plugins can't do quite yet. But beyond that, it's it's very elementary, I think, and very basic. Yeah, that sounds sounds like a very nice gear setup, though. It's like yeah, things it's, that it's are just one really little, necessary. One, one, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. Just the, the bare essentials, just one little rack next to me so I don't have to accrue like the biggest electricity bill in all of history. Yeah, so sure. it's, it's just what we need. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. Yeah, and um, you're, you're right that, that some, sometimes like for, for cranking up stuff and going to the limits of the analog gear, there's some, there's some, some things that the digitals cannot do yet because of the headroom or how the voltage saturates or, you know, 
but yeah, totally. Or the, or the heavy reliance on oversampling for distorted algorithms. I know that that's because yeah. I talked to um, I talked to Shane quite a lot, who runs Catsrog. He, he makes K Clip and Thermionic amps and all that stuff, and he's really big on the the tech element of things. And I know one of his endeavors is finding the right oversampling algorithm, and I'm I'm all behind him on that one because whenever I um. On most of the major plugins, whenever I engage oversampling, it alters the tone of the things that I'm running through it so much that it's just not worth running half the time. But without it, you end up with all this crazy aliasing and stuff. So we're, yeah. we're straddling this very interesting middle ground with the coding right now where I think we're at a point where certain computers are able to handle the prerequisite amount of oversampling to get the sounds that we want, but others aren't. So the algorithms are still having to be written in respect to the lower performing machines. So we're still not at a point where the plugins are sounding quite as good as they could simply as a, as a factor of the reality of where we are hardware-wise. But I'm sure within 10 years or so, that'll no longer be a factor at all. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, here also at Neural, we're trying to project ourselves a little bit because we are restricted sometimes for some memory chips or processors and yep. we are trying to take a step ahead and okay if we have this product ready in like a couple of years then the processor is going to be maybe four times more powerful and maybe we can do this so let's write it right away for the more, more powerful one and you never know then we just apply it to it but yeah we're in this mi this middle ground where computers are <laughs> developing so fast man it's just like every year your computer is trash again and <laughs> it's crazy like how fast it goes yeah 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 i think we probably hit a decent point uh, i'm trying to remember the chip but i remember there was this one magic one from intel it was like an i7 920 i think it was mm -hmm. it was when the i7s first came out and f that was such a quantum leap in computing power for us like regular users i just couldn't believe it to have a quad core to be able to crunch that many numbers and do all that sort of stuff it just absolutely blew my mind and i the fact that it held off for so long i thought we'd be using like octo core chips across the board or like 12 core chips now but m most like mainstream consumer boards still run like just quad core or maybe hexacore like mine does so yeah. it's kind of funny that we we wrote on the laurels of that one chip for so long it's just like we hit this point everyone's like yeah no we, we can make we can make use of this but the thing with us in audio is that we require more more parallel computing power like we're running so many tracks and we're we're crunching so many numbers at the same time that i think it's good that we're back on that train of getting more and more cores in our cpus that we can actually do the stuff that we need to do yeah yeah i know you're right and um coming back a little bit to the question of your gear for example like you mentioned all your all your analog stuff but uh what do you use in in terms of the digital realm what what have you for example what what did you have before in analog that now you just went to the digital and works just fine or um, yep. which kind of daw you prefer for certain projects do you use two different ones or you stick to one yep. or if you can go a little bit into into depth into into that yeah, sure. Uh, well, I've been a Cubase user since I began a uh, very long time now. I mm -hmm. can't even remember how many years, over well over 10 years. So I've always been a Cubase guy at heart. Um, I was very, very lucky to get onto their artist roster recently and work with them now, which is really good. So forewarning, you know, if, if you expect me to be a shill for Steinberg, I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, yeah, I use Cubase and one of my, you know, I know you haven't asked the question in these terms, but if I had to have a Desert Island plugin, it would be FabFilters Pro Q2. Yeah. I use it on everything. It's like the, when it's that amazing. EQ came out, it, 
it blew my mind, man. It's yeah. great. I'm, I'm guessing you use it too, then. Yeah, yeah. We have the whole bundle. It's like for me personally, I use I use the bundle all the time. Like I love the the limiter also. If, like even if I don't have to use it as a limiter itself, I just love the fact that I can see the transients. It's just something that I that I appreciate. Of course, you don't not always need it, but if you're, for example, compressing something before and you just want how to see how it's affecting your your waveform you can just put it as a like transit analyzer and it's beautiful <laughs> i just love it yeah great it's it's a strange thing to praise plugins for but i think fab filter get the ui right above all mm. things it looks good it's 3d accelerated you're getting all the details that you need uh to your eyes and that for me is so important in getting the right feeling while, while i'm mixing i hate looking at outdated like 90s plugin designs i, I can't stand it it's all granulated and it's tiny on my screen because mm. i'm running like a 1440p screen and if their plugin is uh, at a low res i can barely use it these days you know whereas yep. the fab filter ones because they're accelerated they can scale to your screen size so that's amazing there's also the fact that their functionality is always second to none so the fact that you can flip the eq through various phase modes until you find the sound that you like on whatever channel that you're using it on the fact that you've got the real-time spectrum analyzer running even though i don't use that sort of stuff very much the fact that it's there the fact that you can look at it the fact that you can refer back to it is absolutely amazing so yeah definitely plus one for the fab filter bundle but from there, I've used the Slate plugins for quite a while now. Not not the entire pack, mind you. I mostly use the SSL EQ. I use that initial red compressor that they released, whose model name I always forget. Just their standard sort of go-to compressor. And a lot of the stuff from their pack, like I still occasionally use VCC here and there on certain buses just to make things sound and feel a little bit more analog, even though I'm still in the digital realm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's the extent of it. For effects, I mean, Sound Toys is still the king for me. I love Echo Boy. I love um, Filter Freak and all that stuff that they run. Yeah. They're absolutely crazy and great. And uh, what was that? Is that freaking reverb that I absolutely love? I've completely forgotten it. Oh, man. No, I can't remember anymore. I'm, I'm sure I'll, I'll mention it when yeah, I remember. Just pop it, but it in it's when it's you do, one yeah. that everyone. Yeah, yeah, it's one that everyone uses. It's got like the ethereal tail. It's very easy to dial in. You've basically got like a seven second tail and it's just like a wash of high end that works amazingly well on synths. Nice. It's made by the, uh, it's Shimmer, Shimmer by Valhalla. There we ah, go. yeah, 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 sure. Valhalla does also great stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Valhalla guy is great. Yeah, so, uh, yeah before really that, good. Before that, I had this insane sound design reverb called 2C Ether. And I remember paying so much money for it back in the day and I loved what it did and everything, but it's just, it was never good for just like on a snare or something. It was like when you wanted to make some insane horror movie track where like a guy opens a gate and that sound lasts for like 50 fucking minutes, you know, it yeah. just like morphs into different things. I feel like Shimmer does that kind of thing but with like one knob as opposed to yeah, two sure, yeah. where you're like controlling the algorithm itself I, I felt like i needed a degree or a course on how to actually use that plugin so i only have really like used it once or twice yeah the ui of the valhalla ones are they're so simple and they're just very minimalistic i, I love that yeah, they're very easy to use. I think there's a lot to be said about plugins like that. I've always gravitated towards ones where the information's all presented to you and it's very mm. easy to mm. actuate and do the things that you want to do. Yeah, that's a whole thing that we're also studying a lot here in Neural DSP. Like, um, for example, in the like in a, in a in a recreation of an analog gear, then it's that there's no there's nothing about that. But for for future products, we're we're really like thinking a lot 
about the user interface. Like I think it's very important and I always like make emphasis about that and I agree with you about that resolution and you know things are changing so you you have to adapt of, of, to the workflow of nowadays and we are we are really thinking through how to design our UI so I hope that we will surprise you soon with that yeah, I look forward to being surprised. I mean, you guys have started off on a strong foot just using Dark Glass Ultra. All of the information is there on the one screen. It's all available to you as it would be on the stomp box. It's, I, I loved using it, and it's absolutely critical that things work that way these days. Obviously, the fact that you also scale the... Um, the how intensive it is on the processor with the the quality slider as well so you you're pretty much scaling it to you know the near future anyway so it's that's a good start i would say yeah yeah for sure so grabbing grabbing from, from there like let's talk a little bit about the plugin how have you how have you liked it have you did you use a lot the the dark class original gear before a lot or yep. if you can go into deep there like would be really nice to hear your opinion yeah, sure. So the, my first run in with the Dark Glass pedals was my um, my old studio partner. I, I used to sort of work out of a studio in West Melbourne here and he had one. I think it was just when it was getting big. I know Nolly was promoting the products and stuff and I think he picked it up because it was pretty big in the scene at the time. I used it on an album in like for for real for the first time in like 2013, 2014 while recording bass and we ran it directly into like a, a Billy Sheen and Ampeg head right into the cab like this was an old school setup like yeah. cranked in the studio the full cool. cab not, no no di no running in so just it sounded absolutely amazing like I go back to that record these days and go god damn we got a good bass sound man <laughs> that's like, awesome it's just it's just pinned it it's there it's like up there with the guitars you know you would listen to the bass player and he would be right front and center with the the two guitar players and that's that's what i love creating in records i hate it when elements get overshadowed especially ones like bass guitar if they serve a fundamental role in the music and and one of the cool things about the dark glass pedal was it allows you to get that tone and to pin that tone in amongst the guitars get the right amount of distortion get the right sculpted form of distortion to actually accentuate the entire mid-range of the record or what do they call it in periphery they have this term they say binding they call it binding yeah, when they true, get the guitars true. and the bass bound right it's just like it's their thing you know it's when you finally nail it so yeah 2014 was the first record and I just used it on and off since then we used it on um, good mate Francesco Filigoy's uh, Abiogenesis single that we did it's somewhere in amongst that insane layer of synths like 500 synth layers that he has so it's maybe not as prominent as i would normally like but i don't think it's physically possible there's probably like 10 10 frequencies that i can actually use to actually fit in amongst yeah, everything else yeah yeah but uh so with the plugin uh, i actually couldn't believe it when i first pulled it up and actually ran it on a di track i'm like holy crap this this is the pedal in digital form i just was like fuck it I pretty much uninstalled, I didn't uninstall, sorry, so I had a Sansamp PSA1 in my rack, I basically unracked it that very same day that I tried the plugin, I'm like, there's no need for this to be taking up IO slots on my gear anymore, I'm just not going to use it for this, I might use it if I want to, like a guitar sound that's very Ramstein or decapitated, gives you that Sansamp thing, but for bass tones, it's pretty much done, so once I started experimenting with using the two together as well, to use the, um, 
the B7K model is sort of like a corn-esque scooped kind of thing and then use the VDU to actually fill in the mid-range with higher distortion. That's when I realized that the plugin could do it all for bass. Like if you combine the two tones together, you've got a very well-rounded full-range bass tone, which is something I think I helped demo out for you guys on a, um, a tutorial video we recently did. I think we, we covered it reasonably well, like a setup kind of tone. And, and if you want to know what I'm talking about, go check out that video. It pretty much covers it all. Yeah, guys, go go and check out that, that video. We have it on our YouTube channel and everywhere available. So we, we, we can link it also in the comments there. It's a really nice tutorial. And it, yeah, it's, I love doing it's very it. similar that... to what, what I would do also. So it's, 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 a very, it's a very easy thing to do and you get an amazing like, bass, bass tone out of it. So. Yeah, it was great watching Forrester do the same thing. It's great that we yeah. all use the plugin in the same way. But the, the funny thing about Forrester was that he used them in the reverse kind of way that I would. He used the B7K for the higher distortion True. and the VDU for the lower distortion. And I'm just like, yeah, that's <coughs> kind of interesting. I wouldn't have thought of doing that. So it's cool to pick up on these little things, like even just one key thing that you may not have thought about trying. But in the grand scheme of things, I think we all use these plugins pretty much the same way. We all we understand what we're trying to achieve and we understand what parts of the spectrum we're trying to fill out with the bass sound and and yeah. once we get there once we understand that then we can kind of actuate and go towards that so one thing i liked about your video was that you used it on synths and i'm, I'm quite sure that you know dudes like mick gordon are going to do that all the time i, I yeah, know henrik exactly. was using the eq on on like guitars and vocals and stuff as well yeah. and it sounded amazing on the synths like the moment you put it on the synth it sounded like the freaking doom soundtrack <laughs> yeah 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 it does like for some reason the, the distortion has uh, a lot of compression. So if you have, for example, um, like a small tail or a small reverb before it, it it will compress all that that effect rack that you have before, and you you can create a right, like right. a whole different tone out of it. It doesn't need to be distorting that much either. It, like if you have the drive at zero, it, you will see what 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 it does already. So it's a. Uh, I like to to use it as another cre another tool in the toolbox you know just like not not just for bass it doesn't need to be that way anymore so that's something cool about having the plugin that you can now run stereo signals and you know there's no limitations anymore yeah, I completely agree. And that's something that most people wouldn't have had a chance to try out had they had to have reamped it. So I know that Mick, Mick Gordon does stuff like reamping into pedals all the time with the synths. It's like how he created half the tones on that soundtrack. But yeah. for us to, to have the ability to do it in the box to that same level of quality and achieve those kind of grindier synth sounds and or whatever we might want to use it on. Like I said, Henrik, I think he used it on EQing vocals or possibly EQing guitars. So it's really sky's the limit. That's the great thing about digital. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, or computer systems, but otherwise <laughs> everything is fine. So how how yeah, exactly. how is it? The, um, you are releasing a software yourself now, or can you talk a little bit about yeah. about your software? Yeah, well, going back to that video we did together, um, that was the first time I actually demoed it for the public was on oh, the, okay. the Dark Glass de demo video. So nobody had actually ever heard any of the samples from that before. It sounds um, really good. So man. congratulations on that. Thanks. Thanks, dude. In a nutshell, it's basically, it's a bass sample library that I'm developing with my old studio partner that I used to work with. And uh, he does all the coding elements of things. I do the tonal shaping and all that sort of stuff. And, and mm. I think we fit pretty well in that. We have very defined roles. But what it essentially is, is a multi-sampled um, form of my Spectre Euro 5 LX. So it's my regular studio bass that I've owned for years that I've absolutely loved. I've played it for a very long time and I've you know had it used on a few records. And I was sitting with my studio partner one day 
and I had it in the studio and we were talking about, man, wouldn't it be great if every band came in with an instrument like this and they were able to play it to the same level of quality that we actually needed to get the mixes that we wanted? Yeah, because sure. bass is so critical. It's, it's, yeah. it's such an important foundational element of a mix. But unfortunately, most people cheap out on that or they don't know how to play the bass with the required amount of kind of gusto and aggression so they get the tone. So we're like, you know what? we've got like eight hours with nothing to do why don't we try sampling this thing like it was just a joke we just sampled only the hardest hits so i made it sound really corn i like pretty much bounced it off the fretboard every single time and it was one of the most aggressive sounding um sample collections we'd ever had and just for fun he coded it up into a contact instrument yeah and he programmed out one of the one of the songs i was mixing at the time which is the one that we demoed on the the dark last video is one called uh, ruler of ashes by a band called mechanism at the time and he sent it back to me and i'm like fuck man this actually sounds really good like what, <laughs> we're just like kidding around and this sounds amazing so we went back another day and then we fully multi-sampled the instrument like That's we awesome. went hacks we did absolutely everything i cleaned i got the instrument serviced up cleaned it up so there's no more fret noise or anything like that and i basically played it the way that i would play the bass guitar to sound good on like a rock or a metal record with uh, lower velocity samples to also work quite well on pop or whatever else you might want to use it on yeah so awesome the net result is effectively yeah the net result is effectively going to be uh, a, a virtual instrument for the contact player that has either the flat DI for people that really feel like they know what they're doing, they can sculpt it, reamp it in any which way they see fit, or there's also pre-processed tones, which is, I think at one point what I was sort of demoing in the video, I was showing how I arrived at that point, but there are pre-processed tones that I've done specifically mix-ready, like 90% literally pull up the tone, throw it in your mix, and you can demo up your music or just like print it right then and there. So I literally mixed it to the level that I would mix it when I was finishing a record. So it pretty much scales to all levels of production. If you want to do it from flat DI all the way to just like throwing it into the mix, um, it's, it's got all the bases covered. So it's called Submission Bass. Uh, the first product i think that we're releasing the the euro 5 lx we're going to call the euro base and uh I'm, I'm really keen to release it man there's been a really really wholesome really good response on the back of that video and a lot of people seem like they're ready for it so i'm keen to see what happens yeah that's that sounds great man i, I don't think i've seen any like proper bass library so far so yeah that's 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 really nice i'm, I'm excited to try it and just, no, just thanks, out man. Of, like, you'll, you'll be one there. of the first You'll yeah. be one of the first to get it. <laughs> <laughs> nice, awesome. Uh, just a very nerd question: Did you did you implement round robin in, into it, or how did you create like if you like for the same velocity different hits, or how did you do it? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's more Andy's domain, but from what I understand, yeah, there is a round robin system. So yeah. We've multi-sampled cool. the bass at every velocity layer for every every note. Um, we we considered a few different things because you run into interesting constraints when you're sampling uh, an organic instrument for mm. you know electronic reproduction is like where on the fretboard do you play this note yeah like, it do sounds I just different go up, definitely yeah do i go up the e string and play like a duller version of it or do mm -hmm. i play it further up the neck what we generally found for this library was that for a wider range of purposes basically the further um down the neck you played it the closer to the first fret the clearer the tone was when you programmed yeah, it sure. so we just went with this we tried to do the cleanest possible positions to get you the cleanest possible sounds but yeah, uh, to to go back to your question, sorry, there, there's a round robin on every uh, velocity layer of samples on every single sample. So one of the funny things that we discovered while we were listening to other bass sample library attempts in the past is that maybe like 
two-thirds of the notes were just pitch-shifted variants of other notes in order to save uh, yeah, space. Yeah, that, that was the only way to do it before, I guess. Like, there was no... Yeah. There was limited memory, so you had to. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just laughing when I heard this one. That's absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah, and sure. I, know, I know that Andy, for future libraries, he's actually worked out a way to conserve yet more space with our library without kind of um, cutting into the quality at all. But there's a few really crafty things that we did while we were sampling it to, to humanize it and to make it sound more real. Because... It was kind of funny when we were putting it all together. It sounded extremely synthetic, the the original version of it. I'm like, God, it's just lacking something. And then I worked out a way to get those kind of um, intermediary handling noises into mm. the performance that you would naturally get from when you kind of let off the string or you kind of move your hand across. And he's sure. coded it in yeah. a very, very interesting way that uh, I really like. Like Considering that we never had ambitions to actually do something like this, it came together so naturally that I, I'm really keen to see what happens. I'm keen to see how people use it in their productions. And I'm keen to see whether we can sort of make a, a product push out of it. Because if this goes really well, I'm more than happy to you know keep the, keep the ball rolling, keep doing more guitars and and see, you know, how far we can push this whole thing. Sure, yeah, sounds, I'm excited. sounds amazing. It sounds like a very amazing path to go through. So, yeah, I'm excited to try it. It's awesome. Thanks, man. And uh, thanks for giving me the platform to try it out on that uh, that tutorial video as well. It was a really, I think, it was so funny that um, the, the Dark Glass plugins and the thing that I'm developing at the same time, coming out at the same time, works so well together. And yeah. that's one thing I really loved about putting that together. Yeah, sure. And in your tutorial, you show it, so... There's the proof. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, so jumping just to another question, like, um, what, what, which things would um, you you wish you would have known uh, when you started or during your path to like make it more efficient or, you know, where would you go back in history to say like, damn, why why did I spend like a whole year just trying to figure this out and it was right there in front of me or. Or I wish would would have I would have done this differently, or or you wouldn't change a yep. thing. I don't know. Like, I, I would like to yeah, hear about I, that. I understand what you're saying. I I was sort of sidetracked for a great many years there as a mix engineer by the wrong things, unfortunately. So I had a bad period of time where I kind of became a part of the Gear Sluts community, and I started to listen to their ideas about what constitutes good record production. The idea that you need analog this, that you need analog that, you need to, there are certain ways you need to do things, and they actually detracted from my work for a great many years, where I I started overusing saturation plugins on my mixes, even though I would generally be working on extreme metal, which just doesn't need that stuff what we need is clarity so half the time when you add saturation you're removing clarity you're True. actually giving it the wrong thing but the thing is that the plugin developers are very crafty they'll put like an inherent 1db boost so when you put the plugin on you'll immediately think oh this has made it better but it hasn't made it better it's just made it louder and you think it's made it better mm. so when you get to the end of the mix everything's sounding really bizarre and squashed together so that's something i really wish i could have bypassed it took many years for me to find the right amount of saturation in the right places to use on my metal mixes to actually not take away too much coming to a yeah. point where i realized one of my um, one of my colleagues, one of my favorite metal mix engineers, Henrik Ard from Studio Fredman, I mean, he, he pretty much doesn't use that stuff to the best of my knowledge. Like, he completely avoids it. And the more I spoke to people like him who are extremely OCD like I am, who believe about the fundamentals of 
like just EQ, just EQ and compression and how much you can do with the basics, mm -hmm. the more I realized how little you actually need to use that stuff. And when you use it, that you need to basically just use it to affect and to not overuse it. So they're yeah. definitely things I wish somebody kind of pulled me aside and told me like, hey man, you're going down the wrong path. And it mm -hmm. just, I felt it detracted from my work for a while. There was also a period um, during the whole Rise Core movement where I got swept up in the in the fads of editing, man. I over-edited shit. Like I over-edited bass. I over edited guitars and i listen back to it now i'm just like it sounds like i i've reamped a guitar profile man like I, yeah. I don't know what what we were thinking i don't know why we went to this level of deep because it sucks making records that way like it sucks listening to the absolute perfect tuning of every single it does. note it does Make, yeah it it's not fun. It's not fun and it's not part of the process of recording band music. Like, sure, if you're an electro guy, your stuff's going to sound like that because it's all sequenced. But yeah. if you're recording a guitar or something, man, you're not trying to make it sound like a guitar pro document. Just just get good at playing and play the riff and then just record the riff. It's okay, you know? Yeah, and actually, like, since I like I started like started with rock and metal, but now I've, I've, I did an electronic music album. I just started love, falling in love with synths. But then you do, in electronic music, you have to do the the opposite like you have to start taking yep. things off the grid and like shift yep. shift your snare a couple of samples like and manually shift them like a couple of samples back and a couple of samples forward so they are not in, in sync with your kick drum all the time to create sure. like this humanized kind of playing even though it's electronic music but it gives this groove this natural groove that it's not it's not noticeable but in the big picture you can feel it it's so it's like you try to do exactly the opposite than than when you try to edit over edit something in rock, but I don't, totally get what you mean. I guess that we all have this kind of going back to the question, like we all have this like circle of knowledge somehow that we have to like go all the way down the path to learn yep. that when then we come back to the starting point and say like, hey, this was overdoing stuff, but now I know why. Now I know that it's yeah. wrong because I did it wrong and I learned from my mistakes, and now I'm now I'm back to my starting point with more knowledge, and now I know how to do it right. Yeah, and I think the key is while you're making that 360 to so not inadvertently ruin your career so you actually have somewhere to go from when you fulfill that circle of knowledge so that you can actually, you know, actuate it and use it. Mm -hmm. So you hope that your mistakes aren't so bad that you actually completely, you know, ruin any chances of you doing this again. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's challenging. Sure. There's a lot of pitfalls out there. It feels like playing a game of Minesweeper or something. When you go online, there are just... When I look at stuff with the knowledge I have now and compare it to how I would have read something as a kid, it's just like I look at stuff online and it's like 80 to 90% of it is just lies or people that don't know what mm. they're saying, mm. saying something. Like you have no business saying things like this because you obviously don't understand what you're talking about. The, the funniest thing for me is reading comments um, around places like YouTube or whatever and they always conflate even elementary things like mixing and mastering they don't even know where the one ends and the other one takes over. And there's there's so many misconceptions about the the production process of records for the average yeah. person that it's it's very easy, I think, for people to get misled where they to just kind of listen to everything that came their way. Grabbing grabbing from there, like um, which where would you recommend people to go to learn this kind of stuff? If somebody's beginning, for example, and they have some talent on it, or maybe not, but they just want to learn how to do it properly, and they are on. Imagine yourself in your early two thousands. Like, if it would be you, what what would you tell yourself to to read, or what would would you recommend to go to instead of just like jumping in the wrong wrong forums or reading the wrong information because that that can lead you to, as you told to to mistakes that 
it might figure some time to to fix. Well, it's a pretty easy one to answer because I actually wrote a book. Yeah, all right, for, good. For, for no, well, I mean, for myself when I was younger, I, I remember thinking, I'm like, God, I, I wish somebody had written something like this. So I'm like, well, I mean, nobody has, so let's do it. So when I put together the systematic mixing guide, the idea was to basically give people discrete practical knowledge that they could apply immediately so i wanted them to be able to read the ebook or the book whichever format you know they got it in i wanted them to be able to go to the mix immediately and immediately make improvements that was the whole goal of that book because Mm. all the books i'd read up until that point were so esoteric they were talking about like blurry skyscrapers and thinking about what comes out of a guitar cab as colors and trying to catch the colors i'm like what the hell kind of lsd are you on like what the hell are you telling people this has no no practical relevance to anything in record production so like if you're like me you're very um because i kind of grew up in germany i'm very technically minded i'm very Mm. kind of straight down the line in my reasoning very i like to think of myself as fairly rational so that's how i wrote the book it's just like i'm going to tell you exactly what you should consider doing on a mix element as well as i can given that there are obviously unique differences between each you know circumstance but i'm going to give you the most discreet knowledge i can and if you're able to apply that you can immediately improve your mixes and the feedback that i got on the back of that book told me that that was a complete success like i it was one of the most um gratifying experiences in my life knowing that like people read this thing and they went straight back and they're like, man, it improved my mixes instantly over the course of two years. Look, I've gone from here to here. And then some of these guys I've actually worked with, ironically, in a mastering capacity. So they're now mix engineers. They come to me for mastering and we yet again put their mixes through even more processes to improve them. And just seeing the steps of progress over the years for me is probably one of the most gratifying experiences. So number one, I would say just if you haven't read the book, check out the book. It's probably it's the stuff that I would tell you, but in written form anyway. The other one is if you're looking for the closest equivalent that we have right now to the Andy Sneakboard, there's a community of people called the um, the Unstoppable Recording Machine. <coughs> they mm-hmm. basically specialize uh they largely specialize in heavier music but they're also branching out into country and stuff like that too they're a closed community of members i think there's a a, a price of admittance per month but if you get in there you basically get um you get access to fully professionally recorded sessions you get sessions from like gajira from a sugar from architects you literally the the tracks that the engineer was dealing with so it's a really good platform for somebody to actuate and learn and understand what it feels like to work with like end game high tier tracks which is one of the problems i had as a kid was just like recording um sorry mixing somebody's bedroom recording i'm like well you know where does his incompetence end and where does mine begin like i I don't understand like you know how much i suck versus how much the guy that recorded it sucked this way you know you're getting perfect tracks and if they suck at the end it's because you suck and you need to work more (laughs) so that's a very comforting kind of feeling to have when you're working on something and you're learning so i would strongly recommend the unstoppable recording machine community as well as the book and uh because apparently I still have wind left and I'm not done plugging things. I'm actually halfway through writing the next book, The Systematic Recording Guide. That will happen. I know I've been telling people for like six years it will happen, <laughs> but like I've written a hell of it this no, year. That's great. Yeah, I've, it takes uh, a while. Finally, finally, 
Yeah, it does, man. Well, that's the great thing about doing mastering as a day job versus mixing is that I have a lot more free time now. And I have a lot more free time to explore other ventures, such as writing these books, doing these educational materials, developing, you know, virtual instruments. I love the the flexibility and the freedom it's given me to work with guys like you, to do videos like this, to just get out there more, to kind of make people more aware of what's going on. It feels a lot more liberating, I think, than being stuck in a dank mixing cave and just kind of pummeling away for 12 hours a day like I used to for 10 years. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the the recording guide is coming. It's massive. It's going to be a lot bigger than the mixing guide uh, just by virtue of what it is. It's going to be a chapter-by-chapter breakdown like the mixing guide is of how to record drums, guitars, bass, how to service them, what to look out for with pickups, what plectrum type to use, how to strike the string, how to hold the string while you're striking the string, like in what planetary alignment to hold the guitar so there's less noise. <laughs> awesome. Pretty, pretty much Pretty much everything you can conceive of about recording um, professional records so yeah i mean i I can't tell you when it's going to be out but i'm hoping by hopefully early next year if i really get my ass into gear and and things actually work out that's great i guess it takes a lot of idea organization and a lot of planning to be able to write a book this this deep and with all those steps and you know detail so yeah congratulations for that i'm excited i I want to read it too Oh, thanks, dude. I'm, I'm sure that I'll, I'll pass it around to everybody who awesome. wants to gander at it. So, so just uh, also like getting a, li- a little bit to your personal life. Like, um, do you have any like routines that you respect? Like, are, since you you said that you're very structured, uh, like, do you have any like routines? You wake up in the morning, you have a very good breakfast, and then you start your work, and then you go to gym, or do you do any sports, or how do you think about like? Does healthy food help you on your workflow or you just eat whatever and you don't mind that much or how is it how your personal life in, starts to affect your work environment? Yeah, sure. So I kind of restructured the way that I do my life around about six years ago, just just after the release of the mixing guide. I realized that for my age, I felt especially unhealthy. I felt like my lower back was going. I was kind of like, Ugh, uh, every time I sat down and like crouched over, I'm just like, this isn't leading anywhere well, man. Like I was looking at all the top engineers in my industry and those guys just look like they're like Quasimodo, man. They're like snapped up and they're just like hunching over and shit. I'm like, I, this isn't going to be me. I can't do this. Yeah. So I basically basically got back to one of my my earliest passions which is bodybuilding i absolutely love bodybuilding i love going to the gym i love lifting heavy weights i do that maybe five days a week now Uh, at points i've done four days at other points i've done six days a week but it's it's a big part of my life i basically i'll wake up the moment i wake up i'll get my shake in it's like a banana protein smoothie oatmeal kind of thing and while that's digesting i'll do all of my like communication with my clients you know i'll answer emails while maybe run off master revisions that they're after while the food digests and stuff and when i'm ready i'll go train for like an hour hour and a half come you know eat the the eating is so important i'll always have like my half chicken every day i'll have my salad i'll have my rolls i'll have my rice and all that sort of stuff and then i'll get back home and then my workday starts fairly late it usually starts in like the early afternoon or something like that and um, I, I go from there. I, I do whatever work needs to be done for mastering any kind of revisions or whatever, like we're doing this in the afternoon now. And then because of the the flexibility that mastering affords, you know, having having slaved for so many years for like um, 12 hour days and like 16 hour days trying to deliver shit, um, I take my free time where I can get it. 
So I'll, I'll have as short a work day as I possibly can on the really intense stuff. And then come evening time, I'll try and hang out with my friends. If they want to go out somewhere, we'll like take a cafe break. The, the key for me, because I work from home, I have a project studio, is that I need to get out of home constantly. So for me, I go to the gym, I get away from home, I go have lunch, I get out of home. I go out for for dinner or for like a cafe in the evening, I'll get away from home because home is also my workplace and it's very important for me to get the requisite amount of mental break from being here all the time. Uh, So that's that's one of the keys, I think, when you work at home. You'll find that you'll get a certain cabin fever if you work there. You won't be able to separate your leisure time from your work time. You won't be able to kick into sleep mode from work time. You'll just sit there like awake all night, not not being able to do anything. So I take constant breaks. I always go elsewhere. I try and change my surroundings and I try and keep my life as dynamic as I can to stop myself from stagnating. And that applies both like... um, uh, was I going to say psychologically as well mm, as uh, mm. physiologically? Yeah, so, no, yeah. I completely agree with you, and I think that, um, like, as I mentioned before, before to you in an internal conversation, that it's very important to 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 change that that work environment, and it's very hard, or at least it was very hard for me when I had this like home studio that it it was very hard to keep the balance on like when which time am I going to work. Or which time am I gonna like? It's gonna be my free time because then I all of a sudden I'm, it's like 10 p.m. I'm like ready to go to bed, but damn, I want to just jump into the mixing like one more time and just listen it through and see what did I do, and then I get stuck like three more hours playing around and like then it's not worth it because I'm tired, my ears are tired, I've been the whole day working on it, and then like, to draw that line, it's kind of it's kind of hard. Well, you 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 go outside and you have a break or you have a different place to work into, then this you come with fresh ears, your your mind rest, rests a bit, your ears come fresh, and then you're much more efficient and things get done on, yep. on time and they get done right. So that's, I think that's really important. And also, I, I also agree with you that, that like good, good food and exercise always keep your, your system running better. So it will apply to your workflow sooner or later. Yeah, that's the irony of it all. I thought I would lose too much time away from work that I would get worse at it, but I actually got better at it because mm. the me- the requisite mental break actually lets you approach it fresh and hit things laterally and, and in a way that you wouldn't have had you, you had tunnel vision for that project. So it's absolutely critical to find balance. This is funny because this is the exact conversation I was having with Mark Lewis when he passed through Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. Mm. We're just sitting down, you know, having our chicken because Mark is a big sort of, a, you know, lifting, working out kind of guy. And we're sharing such similar experiences about the way that our minds function that we need that break away from the job otherwise it would send us insane so i would strongly recommend picking up a physical component or some kind of a hobby component outside of this to anybody who's chasing it full time you need to have something whether it be like drifting your car sideways i'm sure in finland that'd be fantastic hell if (laughs) i was in finland i'd be like an amateur rally driver um because i I love rally i'm so envious of you guys i would just be flying over all of those hills totaling my car basically every two days um but you know you can do stuff like that or you can lift weights you can go for a run you can be a swimmer you know play squash with your friend really yeah, whatever sure. whatever does it for you whatever yeah. gives you the requisite uh break yeah like it, it applies to different like different to different persons like some people like to go to the gym i i like to play tennis in my free time i go to the gym because i i find it efficient like it's not my favorite but if i have the chance to go outside yep. and play a tennis match i would do or football or just throw the basketball alone to the basket it's it's fun you know go swimming or whatever i can do if i can do it outside because in finland not always you can yep. but you know whatever you can find whatever just distracts your mind and hopefully like 
at least for me, I figured that all my life, like sports have been something that no matter how my my day looks like, it always distracts my mind completely. I cannot think about anything else that what what I'm doing there. If it's volleyball, for example, I played volleyball like for seven years. I was like just focused on training, you know, like on getting better in volleyball. And I got so like, like completely into training and competition that my mindset at those two, three hours was completely there. And then when I got home and have a shower, then it's like, oh yeah, I have to mix something. This is fun again, you know? So it's, yeah, it's, yep. it's very important. I would never leave it. <laughs> I completely agree. I, I think the key that you said is if you can do it outside, you probably should. I see a lot of people come into the gym and they just like walk on the treadmill. And it's like, you, you literally, you drove here to go walk on a machine. Mm. You could have walked here from your house and then walked back and gotten the same benefit. You would have gotten the vitamin D from the sun, the fresh air from exactly. being outside. And just the the mental benefit from not being inside again. That a lot of the things that people do at the gym doesn't really make much sense. But for me, obviously, it's necessary because I love the, the weightlifting. I'm not going to find like, you know, 140 kilos just lying around outside that I can lift <laughs> nicely and safely. Yeah, sure, sure. So, I, I, need to, I need to actually go to the gym and do this. But, you know, for, for guys that are just into the cardiovascular element of fitness or just the sport element, absolutely do as much outside as you possibly can. Mm. It's the best way. Yeah, sure. Well, like, I think that we're coming to an end, but any anecdotes, stories, life tips that you want to share or anything else that you want to add? Uh, nothing in particular, really. I can't. I think we've covered the whole gamut of things. I guess I'll, I'll just touch back on a few of the things that people may want to hear about uh, recently that we've been up to, I guess. Uh, so what, what we've recently done is uh, Dan Weller and I have finished up the new Berry Tomorrow record. I think the single was just dropped like two weeks ago. That's a really cool one. It's going to be like one of the strong metal metalcore contenders of the year, I think. Awesome. Um, prior to that's that, nice. Nolly and I, yeah, yeah, that's it's a good record. I'd, I'd check it out. There's a song called Black Flame on YouTube. That's the pilot single. And uh, Nolly and I very recently did the new Bleed From Within record, a UK metalcore band, pretty much like underrated metalcore record of the year for me. It's just su- such a strong strong album strong contender and i think one of nolly's best mixes as well so even if you want to check it out as a reference record i would uh, strongly recommend it i like working on it quite a lot great anything that you want to ask to yeah, the crew of neural dsp any questions for us <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely i'm just like uh you know if we were off camera i'd ask doug what what numbers he pulls at the powerlifting meets <laughs> but uh <laughs> just like i'm pretty sure he posts everything on instagram so I think that you can check that out there. Oh, cool. <laughs> oh, he's, he's one of those guys, huh? Uh, has he instituted like a workout regimen for you guys at the office? Do you have to do like a set amount of squats or something before you sit down at the desk? Uh, no, not really. But he's always preaching preaching his ideology, which is great. <laughs> we take the best of it, so. Oh, that's that's... That's that's good. Well, to, honestly, to, to get a bit more serious, uh, what are you guys working on? Because I know Neural isn't just like a sister company to Darkglass. I know that you're going to do more than just base modelers. So, what are you guys up to? Yeah, we're we're upcoming with some with some new stuff. Like I I cannot talk about that much, but I think that we will like jump jump into some something outside of the base world very soon. So we just we just use the the push of of Darkglass so we can create some product that we com- that we have full knowledge about that we know how it's done how it's designed because we have this connection with the darkless guys so it was quite easy to to start from there like um like a very solid ground to start but we definitely don't want to stay all the time in the base realm so 
hopefully our best product is our next product is going to be something completely different so uh, i'll keep you posted on that yeah i look forward to it and hopefully we have uh, many more tutorial videos to make with whatever you release yeah yeah definitely of course we are growing our our artists artist page like bigger bigger all the time and it's it's really really nice to have you on board man I oh, thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be on board. And, you know, as we mentioned before, I love using the plugins and very keen to see what you guys come up with. So fingers crossed we uh, collaborate for many more years. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks to for everyone to be in this first episode of Inside the Machine with Neural DSP and Ermin, Ermin Hamidovic. And, well, I hope that you have a nice winter there in Melbourne. We are trying to enjoy our, our small summer here in Finland. And catch you up next time, man. That's fantastic, man. Thank you for having me. Uh, hopefully there's another one of these. And, uh, you know, enjoy your two-week break of summer that you get. <laughs> yeah, if it's not just this week. But let's see. I have to parachute jump tomorrow, by the way. I'm super scared. <laughs> oh, that's that's nice. That's I mean, if, if you've got two weeks of summer, what better thing to do while the plane can still fly safely? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'd rather do it this week. <laughs> I missed it last year because it was yeah, too cold, so... I had I have to do it now. Ah, uh, yeah. You definitely don't want to do it while it's in a blizzard or something like that. It's probably <laughs> yeah. scary enough with clear skies. Yeah, sure. Let's see. I'll tell you more about it next right. time. <laughs> okay. Take care, man. Nice to have you. <laughs> I look forward to it. All right. Thank you, mate. Bye-bye.